Good morning again, Hill family. If you have a Bible, you can please open it to Romans chapter 1, where we will be this morning, Romans chapter 1. I'll make one note to our announcements. We have a we have the marriage conference coming up. I would highly encourage singles and marrieds to sign up for that. Uh, a dear friend, mentor of mine, and a brother with over 40 years of pastoral ministry will be leading us there. I've never been around Phil Newton and not been extremely blessed and exhorted and encouraged, so I would highly encourage you to sign up for that. You can do that online. I'd love to have you there. There will be child care provided for those that need it, so uh, don't let that be a hindrance to you. Please come. It'll be a sweet time together. Romans chapter 1. The righteousness of Jesus uh, often has a way of offending the self-righteous. Luke chapter 5 Jesus does the unthinkable when he calls a tax collector by the name of Levi to be one of his disciples. While no one likes tax collectors, Levi was of an especially different kind. Levi was a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire who occupied the land and people of Israel. Being forced to pay money to uphold the nation that the Jews were in subjugation to was horrendous. And for Levi, a a Jew, to work for Rome, which paid really well, by the way, to extract money uh, from his own people was detestable. Levi was considered a traitor, an enemy, a compromised and defiled outsider, unworthy of the grace of God. And yet Jesus has the audacity... To say to Levi, come, follow me. Levi did. And it forever changed his life. And following this call, Levi throws a a great feast in his house. And remember, Levi had bank. So he invited a large company of people to join him. A large company, the Bible tells us, of tax collectors sit at the table and eat with him. And seated at that unusual table, sharing fellowship with that most scandalous group of people, is the Lord Jesus. And the religious leaders, they're outraged by what they see, and they ask Jesus a very pointed question. So why do you eat, drink with tax collectors and sinners? To which Jesus responded to them, verse 36 of Luke chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. Verse 36, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. On one level, Jesus' response is simple enough for any child to grasp it, right? If you're not sick, you've got no need to go to the doctor. Everybody gets that. But then Jesus relates that simple truth to a profound spiritual reality. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is saying that if you don't, if you understand yourself to be righteous, lacking no sickness, spiritually speaking, you have no need for me. In fact, what I say and what I will do will probably be found to be offensive to you. But if you understand yourself to be ill spiritually, a sinner in need of spiritual healing, then you can truly understand who I am. The point Jesus is making, the principle that he lays down, is that the manner in which you understand yourself 
will determine the extent to which you can understand Jesus and what he has to offer you. This morning, we've made our way to our third week in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you're new to the hill, visiting with us, our regular diet of preaching is that we, can, we, we take books of the Bible and preach through them consecutively. And over the past few Sundays, we've addressed Paul's introductory greeting to the church in Rome by a church that he has not met, by the way. And he, he introduces himself, he introduced himself, as we saw, by the foundational truth that he belonged to God, that he had been called by God, and that being, he had been called by God for the purpose of God's gospel in the world. And after communicating a, a deep desire, he said a, a, a deep longing to visit these churches and to impart some spiritual encouragement to them and to receive that from them. They would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul provided last week his thesis statement, we said, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, which we said Paul spends the rest of this letter unpacking. And that thesis statement found in verse 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is telling us that there is a power necessary for salvation contained in the gospel message, which is available to all people. But access to that saving power demands belief, faith, receiving the righteousness from God by faith in Jesus Christ becomes Paul's primary concern in this letter. But to receive that righteousness from God in Jesus requires us possessing accurate understanding of ourselves. That we are, in fact, unrighteous. So over the next two chapters, Paul is going to model Jesus' logic for us. Paul's aim for the church at Rome... And for you and for I is to revel in the glory, the wonder, and the treasure of what Jesus has accomplished, and what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. We are headed to the mountain peak of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. That's where Paul's taking us. Where we learn how the righteousness we need to stand before God has been provided for us in Jesus, that we can receive it by faith. Paul's going to tell us that God is both just and the justifier in Jesus. That's where we're going. But not before we understand and embrace the truth that there is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 2, verse 10. Paul follows Jesus' logic that there is a great physician who offers a glorious cure, but a glorious cure that is only available to those who know themselves to be sick. Now, if you remember back to our introduction of this book, we mentioned there was an ethnic tension between Jews and Gentiles in this church. And Paul keeps his eye on both parties throughout this letter as he writes. And this morning, he's going to primarily address Gentiles. And by Gentiles, we mean those who did not receive the law. And then chapter 2, as we'll pick up next week, he's going to address the Jews who received the law. But we need to hear, and we're going to see as we as we move towards chapter 3, that the spiritual diagnosis that Paul lays forward is the same for everyone. 
the righteousness we need to stand before God, no one possesses in and of themselves. We all need God's divine solution in the gospel. So, my argument this morning, or Paul's argument, I believe, and I want to make it to you this morning, is that the only solution sufficient for our spiritual sickness is the saving work of God in the gospel. The only solution sufficient for our spiritual sickness is the saving work of God in the gospel. So please put your eyes on verse 18 of chapter 1. I'm going to read down to end out the chapter in verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are fools, envy, murder, strife, deceitful, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, We need your help, as always, when we read your text and study your text. God, we want to hear from you. We are sinners, as this text is going to lay before us. Therefore, we try in so many ways to hear truth on our own terms. God, I pray this morning that, A, number, uh, number one, my, my words would be clear from the text. But, B, Lord, I pray for the ears of our hearts, that we would hear accurately your word. For we see there is a beautiful 
wonderful position in Jesus. And that's the point of this sermon. But we cannot know this position unless we adequately understand the diagnosis of our own soul. So God, be with our time. Holy Spirit, attend to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it's true in Paul's day, many will refuse to accept such a message as contained here in Romans 1. It's always seemed to most people that they are, on the whole, pretty decent people. While no sensible person will say or admit that they're perfect, neither will most admit to any grievous wrong done by in their life. And because of this, most people feel they are sort of right with God. But for Paul and the rest of the Bible, the real issue is not that people have met their own standards, but that they have not met God's standard. Humanity has come short of God's righteous demands, and therefore humanity finds itself in the greatest danger of all, subject to divine wrath itself, which is exactly where Paul turns our attention to this morning. Now, given the, 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 the apostles' laser-like logic this morning, I want to limit my outline really to just two broad headings in an attempt not to confuse the clarity of Paul's thought. Paul's argument is held together. I want you to zoom out with me for a moment and just see Paul's argument is held together by a series of for or becauses that are then followed by a strong therefore he's going to give us, okay? So if you zoom out just a little bit, look back at verse 16 from last week. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How is that the case? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is this so important, Paul? Because for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he says in verse 18. And then he goes on to explain why the wrath of God is revealed is revealed in heaven. A four in verse 19, a four in verse 20, a four or because in verse 21, and then verse 24, a therefore. Right? So two headings this morning, our rejection of God, I want us to show, and then the consequences that follow. Our rejection of God and the consequences that follow. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, the word for, as I said, or because, communicates the continuation of Paul's thought. It's going to knit it together, sew it together in this string all the way across. We see it from last week. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is essential because for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The gospel is good news because it contains the only power to deliver us from the wrath of God. That's Paul's point. Notice Paul describes the wrath of God here in present tense terms. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, the idea that God would inflict wrath on people is considered by many to be incompatible with our modern sensibilities. It's considered archaic. And therefore, it's either ignored, reinterpreted, or rejected outright. 
But the logic of Paul's argument makes clear that the reality of God's wrath is essential to our to us understanding the message of the gospel, to us understanding the power of God's salvation made available to us. But biblically speaking, we do need to be clear here on what's, what's being communicated. The wrath of God must not be confused with the wrath of man, which brings to mind out-of-control fits of anger and temper tantrums, we might say, out-of-control temper tantrums. No, divine wrath is incompatible with man. Paul describes it as being revealed from heaven. God's wrath is an expression of His unrivaled holiness and God's inflexible justice. The God of the Bible is not, and in fact cannot be, passive in the face of that which opposes Him. And what opposes Him is our sin. The ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. God is vigorously opposed to evil, and that is a good thing. His character demands it. God's wrath speaks to His righteous retribution evoked by our sin, which the text says is active and present, but in no way selective. It's revealed against all wrongdoing, all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And Paul characterizes sinners at the end of verse 18 as those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, in our sinning, we push down, we suppress, we deny, we try to stand on top of and push down that which is true and evident. And Paul clarifies what he means in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So Paul is referencing an undeniable general truth about God woven into the very fabric of the universe itself. He's saying God has shown this, made this evident to all people. What has He shown? The fact that He is eternal and sovereign creator and sustainer of the world. Paul says that that fact is clearly perceived by the world in which we live. There are only two possible explanations for reality. Either the universe is eternal and has always existed, or there is an eternal being that gave rise to the existence of the universe. That's it. The most elementary level of common sense and logic tells us that something cannot come from nothing. It's taught that by chance, certain things came together that resulted in what we see today as our existence. But the question still stands like a flashing red light. What things came together? Either the universe itself is eternal, which every piece of evidence around us denies, Or an eternal being gave rise to what we see, the existence of reality. Paul says that fact, the truth about God's existence and power is undeniable. Say, well, Pastor Jimmy, why doesn't everybody just wholeheartedly accept that truth if it's so evident? Paul tells us because as sinners, in our sin, we suppress the truth that is evident to us. We step on it, try to hide it, push it down. 
But the fact that we suppress the truth does not get us off the hook. The end of verse 20 says, they are without excuse. Now, the they, the they there is important. It goes back to the argument. He's going to use this they language throughout, right? The they language is all-encompassing. It's all of humanity. But the they language serves Paul's argument. Remember, he's making an argument to Gentiles first. And then he's going to make one to Jews. He's going to say the Jews have also rejected the truth that they have been given as well. He says no one is outside of this knowledge. There's no human being who gets to say, ultimately, I didn't know. It wasn't clear to me, God. Paul says mankind's without excuse. We also see that Paul is not suggesting in any way that this knowledge of God, which is evident, is saving knowledge of God. God reveals his saving knowledge, not in sunsets, but in his divine son, whom we encounter in his word through his special revelation. This is Paul's argument as we're going to move forward. But he's saying that our guilt and condemnation before God lie in the fact that we have sinned and suppressed the knowledge, the truth that we have received. And our suppression of this, our suppression of this truth, Paul said, is not merely a matter of our minds. It's ultimately a matter of our heart. For it's ultimately a matter of worship. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. It's been said that the danger of not worshiping God is not that we won't worship, but that we will go on worshiping just about anything. Worship is an inescapable reality to the human experience because God made us as worshipers. And our sin is an expression of our distorted worship. Again, following Paul's logic, his for her because in verse 21, we see this. Mankind is without excuse. Although we possess knowledge of God, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This word translated as honor, same word for glory. And this is coupled with the word give thanks or praise. Paul saying mankind does not ascribe to God that which is due God. And of course, every grammar winning every grammar winning artist ascribes polite words to God on the stage. But their lives demonstrate their worship to be fixed somewhere else. And what's magnified on a Grammy stage is merely multiplied amongst mankind. The Bible refers to this as idolatry. Paul's going to state that explicitly in verse twenty five. Mankind prefers a religion of our own making rather than God's divine revelation. And this idolatry springs from futile thinking and darkened hearts, Paul says. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not referencing an organ that pumps blood. It's referencing really the causal core of our person. Our heart is the steering wheel of our lives. From our heart flows the loves, the passions, and the desires that determine the outcome of our lives. And our pointless thinking has resulted in our disordered loves that drive our vain worship, our idolatry. 
Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Paul's argument hangs on this word exchange. He's going to use it a few times. In man's perceived wisdom, we've become fools. How? By exchanging, by substituting the glory of the one true immortal God for counterfeits. Paul's saying, there's a problem at the heart of humanity. There's a sickness at the core of our being. At the heart of my life and your life is a sickness. We desire, we exchange the glory of God for counterfeit gods that we craft out of our own hearts. And while our modernization, it may have moved us beyond carving statues and bowing down before them, modernization has no power to transform the idolatrous hearts that we have. The truth of of the matter is, is that the Roman culture with its pantheon of gods in the past, or the land of India today with its plethora of deities, pales in comparison to the idolatry of the Western culture we live in. Our idols are everywhere. They're all over magazine covers. They're plastered all over our commercials on our televisions. They shine from billboards on the side of the road. We see them in social media advertisements, Instagram posts, and TikTok videos. Our culture is driven by an idolatrous worship of self. Evidenced by the insatiable desire for freedom, success, acceptance, notoriety, and sexual expression. Our hearts are idol factories that tend to take good things that God gives us, like career and love and marital material possessions and even our our families and our children and turn them into ultimate things. We take these good things and make them ultimate things and place them at the center of our person believing they're going to provide us ultimate satisfaction, security, safety, and fulfillment. Thinking we are wise, we have become fools. By exchanging and substituting the glory of the one true God for counterfeits that we craft from our own hearts. Beloved, Paul is spelling out our spiritual diagnosis here. And what's true in terms of our our physical well-being applies equally to our spiritual well-being. That is... There, there can be no meaningful discussion regarding a prescription of health until you adequately understand the diagnosis of your health. And Paul's spiritual diagnosis of humanity is thorough and clear here. Sin is a universal problem. And sin is a serious problem. Because sin is seated at the core of our person. Sin is far worse than mere actions we commit. Sin is a a disposition of our heart. The reality is we don't just do the wrong things. We love, desire, and pursue the wrong things. 
And while our sin creates all sorts of problems for us on a horizontal level, we know that in friendships and family relationships and work relationships, the ultimate problem is a vertical problem. At our core, our sin is a rejection of God Himself. It is a saying to God, our Creator, the Sovereign One, no, I'm good, I'll do it my way. When the apologist and Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer was asked how he would share the gospel with the person if he had 15 minutes, he said, I'd probably spend the first 12 minutes telling them the bad news of their sin and the seriousness of it before a holy God. And then I would spend the next three minutes explaining to them the beauty of Jesus. Now, you might disagree with his method, but I think you understand his point. There's no reason to explain the wonder of the cure apart from an acceptance of a sickness. No one needs a doctor who's not sick. Paul's merely here mimicking the words of Jesus. He's saying we're sick. I don't have to convince you that there's something wrong with the world out there. Right? You have the news to watch. You have a Twitter feed to scroll. You have work relations to navigate. You have broken family relationships that you have to figure out. But the Christian demands, Christianity demands more than just there's something wrong with the world out there. Right? Jesus' own words demand we say more. Right? The religious leaders knew of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of Rome. They were right. And they were right. They were very aware and right of Levi's sin and unrighteousness. It was true. But they failed to recognize that they were no better than Levi himself. The sin they so readily saw out there was native to their own souls. They shared the same sinful, rebellious heart as Levi. You see, shrouded in their religious self-righteousness, they too had rejected God. Paul's going to take us there next week. You see, as moral creatures living in a moral universe, there are consequences that follow our rebellion. As mankind, we do not get to reject God and merely get away with it. So in verses 24 to 32, Paul hangs it now on the therefore. And we're confronted with a graphic picture of what follows when mankind chooses to worship counterfeit gods. So we turn in verse 24 to the consequences that now follow. We are told today that human freedom, I think everyone needs to hear this, but young people in the room especially need to hear this. I'll let you define what's young. But we're told today that human freedom and true human expression are found in the removal of restraint and the pursuit of our passions and desires. Chasing, acting, and expressing the deepest desires of our heart is to believe what defines human flourishing today. At least that's what it said. God says something different. God is the author of life. And therefore, He defines what human flourishing entails. And here's the reality. Departing from His good intentions results in the dehumanizing of ourselves. 
in verses 24 to 32, we're confronted with a graphic picture of what follows when we choose to worship ourselves and the things of our imagination. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We see here again how God is not a passive actor in relation to sin. This section is framed three times. We're going to read how God, He gave them up. Literally, He hands humanity over. God's wrath is administered presently towards the sinful rebellion of man in that He removes restraint. And He hands us over to the distorted desires of our hearts. This sadly leads to impurity. Or to be more specific, sexual impurity. Resulting in the dishonoring or the degrading of our bodies. Literally, the dehumanizing of ourselves. And all this comes as a result of our idolatrous worship. He's situated right in the middle there. He said in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And there's the word. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, the second time God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. It says, for their women exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He says, because of our idolatry and refusal to honor God, God responds by giving us over to our own dishonorable passions and shameful lusts. And this is defined again in another exchanging, the word is here. Another exchanging or substituting. Women exchanging natural relations for that which is unnatural. Literally, the phrase here is going against nature. As well as men being consumed, or the language can be stronger, inflamed with passions for other men and committing shameless acts with other men. The truth is, as, as human beings, we're, we're passionate beings. God made us that way. And the description here is of one being consumed or inflamed by disordered and unnatural passions, producing disordered and unnatural acts. Now, I am very aware there is an attempt to interpret this passage as arguing that Paul is condemning here, what he's condemning here is not homosexuality. But he's condemning self-seeking sexual excesses as opposed to moderation. In other words, the argument goes that the Bible has no problem with committed homosexual relationships. That unbridled sexual expression is really his point here. Well, the Bible does speak against unbridled sexual excess as being sin. In fact, the Bible speaks of all sexual activity outside the confines of biblical marriage as sin. But Paul's language of natural and unnatural is undeniably a reference to nature and going against nature in terms of homosexual acts. 
The reality is the Bible is not unclear here or anywhere else. Homosexuality goes against God's created order. It's contrary to nature itself. And it's sinful, the Bible says. And the language here of receiving the due penalty for their error speaks to the unnatural reality of the practice and the manner in which God views it. Now, I want to step back for a moment. Because given the difficulty of this issue in our culture, especially pressing upon us as Christians, I want to take a moment and address it directly and head on. Okay? The Bible is clear on this issue. And we need to be clear as Christians as well. And, and I want to do that. I want to address it in terms of three categories, which mirror really the three hats that I said Paul is wearing as he's writing. Remember, I spoke of those, that he writes as a theologian, as a pastor, and as a missionary. So I want, I want to think about it in those three categories. What do we say about this theologically? What do we say about this pastorally? What do we say about this missionally? So first, what does the Bible say about homosexuality theologically? Well, the Bible addresses it clearly and unequivocally. We could go to multiple passages, but Leviticus 18.22 states, speaking to men in the law, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman is an abomination. But probably the most important passage that we should think about and consider deeply, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, where we read, do you not know that the unrighteousness of man will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, important first, first phrase there, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Theologically, the Bible is clear that homosexuality is a sin outside of God's design for humanity. But the Bible is also clear, beloved, theologically, that people are not defined by their sexual practices. Meaning it's possible and in fact necessary for us as Christians to love, accept, embrace, assign every single person with the dignity, honor, and respect they are owed as image bearers of God and yet at the same time reject their sexual practices. We have to reject the false notion being thrust upon us today that to reject a person's sexual practices is to reject them as a person. That is a lie. That is a lie. So we've got to think about this theologically. But we've got to think about it pastorally. And pastorally, we must lovingly say what the Bible says, but we must wisely and not shy away from the difficulty of it. But we need to also be careful not to say more than the Bible says. The Bible does not elevate, underscore, define the sexual sin of homosexuality as some special category. In the verse I just read from 1 Corinthians, Paul lists the sin of homosexuality alongside adultery, theft, greed, and drunkenness. And then in the next phrase, chapter 6, verse 11, we read, but such were some of you. So the reality is, Christians, the diagnosis is clear. While we may not share the same expression of sin with all people, we all struggle with the same source, our own sinful, rebellious heart. And we all need the same solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pastorally, we don't cave to the culture around us, 
But neither do we alienate people by a lack of compassion or a sense of self-righteousness as if, as if any of us are anything other than sinners saved by the grace of God. Here's the truth. God is against all sin. The very sin you struggle with, He's against it. And all Christians are called to fight sin at every turn by repentance and faith. That's true, pastorally. But missionally speaking, as believers, we're called to hold out the hope of the gospel. Sinner, wherever you find yourself, there is hope in Jesus. Real, supernatural change is possible through repentance and faith in Christ. If anyone can confess that truth, it's a Christian. You're here this morning and you struggle with the particular sin of homosexuality, we are glad you were here. If you want to know, I want you to know and experience that there is hope in the gospel. Beloved, I, I stopped at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, but verse 12 goes on. He says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. The hope of the gospel is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That we are being saved from the power of sin. And that one day we will be fully and finally saved from the presence of sin. That is the hope of the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 28. To speak of God giving mankind over a third time. This time, it's, it's said to be over to a debased mind or corrupt thinking. But this time, he follows that with a whole litany of sin that's, that characterizes mankind. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul's diagnosis is thorough of sin. But look at verse 32. Paul provides a summary statement here, which I think sadly is meant to frame the entire picture that he's painting. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. At the, at the bottom of our depravity is the desire for mankind to applaud and champion that which we know is wrong. Approving and encouraging another person's sin and self-destruction is a sure sign that we have reached our lowest dimension. And this is where we find ourselves in our culture. Where godliness, purity, decency, and righteousness are mocked. Where immorality and unrighteousness are applauded and celebrated. Such is the state of our world today. And this, Paul says... We have to pay attention and be biblical here. 
This, Paul says, is the result of God giving us up to ourselves. C.S. Lewis famously said that there are only two types of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. But why would God do such a thing? Why would God give us up to the lust and, and our own destructive devices? Because God's giving up, beloved, is actually an expression of His grace. We recoil at truth-telling in our culture. But withholding truth is one of the most unloving things you could do to a person. Imagine you start to have headaches. And you go to the doctor and they run tests. The doctor gets the results. The diagnosis is very clear. You have stage 4 brain cancer. But in order to keep you from that difficult and painful news to hear it, the doctor chooses to withhold that truth. And instead, he says your headaches are probably due to stress. He suggests that you get some rest and gives you some headache medicine to go home with. How unloving and unjust of a thing would that be? Because by withholding the truth, the doctor is ensuring that Ensuring your inability to receive any sort of prescription for that terminal illness. God gives us up that we might see the truth of ourselves and recognize the seriousness of our state before Him in order that we might receive the divine solution that He provides for us. But my analogy of sin and brain cancer does break down, right? Because as of at this point, there's no real cure for cancer. But there most assuredly is a cure for sin. There most assuredly is a cure for our spiritual sickness. Because God has done more than just hand us over to our own sin. Out of His unbelievable love for humanity, God gave up. God handed over His very Son as the divine prescription for our sin. The message of Christianity is that we need a righteousness to stand before a holy God. We don't have it. God is judge. He is sovereign. And the true diagnosis is that we are lacking what we need. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore deserve the due penalty of our sin. As verse 32 says, we deserve to die. But God in His matchless grace, God in His uncompromising justice sent Jesus, His divine and sinless Son, to live the life the way we should have lived it. Rather than suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Jesus is the embodiment of truth itself. Rather than exchanging the glory of God, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Every breath Jesus took, every word Jesus spoke, every action and decision Jesus ever made was to the honor and to the praise of His Father. And the consequence 
that followed Jesus' perfect life of obedience was that He allowed Himself to be handed over unto death for us. Jesus bore in His body on the tree that which we deserved. The full wrath. Condemnation. And the punishment for our sin. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And Jesus rose victorious, victoriously. Possessing eternal power. And offering to us forgiveness, cleansing, and the sanctifying work of His very Spirit through repentance and faith in Him. Though we claim to be wise and had become fools, through the foolishness of the cross, God has made available the wisdom of the glorious gospel of His grace. But none of that proves beneficial to a person who refuses to believe they're sick. In fact, that's offensive. And that's what we feel today. The most offensive thing that you can say to a person in our culture is that you're wrong. Right? To tell a person that they need to change. To tell a person that they have a problem. And, and I would ask why. And I think it's, I know it is. It's because we and our culture are no, are no different than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We're self-righteous. We readily see the problems out there. But we refuse to accept the fact that what's out there began in here. Christianity is not about earning. It's definitely not about deserving. And it's not about gaining anything through our own efforts, good works, or attempts at righteousness. The message of the cross is not ultimately an example to follow. It's a verdict that we are to embrace. It's a work that's been accomplished. We must receive. The only solution sufficient for our spiritual sickness is the saving work of God in the gospel. Is that how you understand yourself? A sinner, sick, and needy of Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's the front door to walk into the Christian faith. That's the posture that we have to take to grow every single day of our lives. We're sinners in need of God's grace. And Christians, we are people of grace. Amen? We are to live in light of grace. We are to preach a message of grace. But we need to hear this truth. We must never distort grace by placing it in opposition to the law. By placing grace in opposition to the righteous commands of God. For apart from the righteous commands of God, we would not know God's holy character. And apart from the righteous commands of God, we would not know the sinfulness of our own soul. And apart from the righteous commands of God, then we would not know and understand and embrace and walk in the beauty of the message of the gospel. We lose and hold back telling people they are sinners. We lose the beauty of the gospel. That's for your own walk with Jesus. That's for our witness in the world. 
not a Christian today. There's no message like Jesus. There's no message like the gospel, which like the prophet Jonah will take you to the bottom as I began. The message of the gospel is you have to realize that you are you have descended down deep. The bars of justice are around you. The weeds of the reality of your sin are around your neck. But there is hope in Jesus. And from that position of rightly understanding yourself, you can see the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus is. And you can come by faith and repentance to know and truly understand what the prophet Jonah said, the reality of the whole Bible, that salvation belongs not to you, belongs not to me, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful reality of the gospel. Lord, we thank you We thank you for the beauty of this text. I'm grateful for the clarity of it. God, it takes courage and honesty to receive and look in the face the reality of a text like today. So Holy Spirit, make us mature, courageous people that, that aren't immature people, that don't act like the religious leaders and try to defend ourselves and try to wear robes of self-righteousness and quick to point out something in someone else, but then quick to justify it and sweep it under the rug in our own lives. God, we do that. And it's in those moments, God, where we need to see the depravity of our own heart. We so want justice on behalf of others, but we so want to turn from it and run away from it for ourselves. I pray that you would daily show us our sin and allow the law to do its revealing work in our lives. That we might, as Jesus said, come to the end of the law, the goal of the law, the purpose of the law, and find the wonderful lawgiver and the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Lord, in this room, you know who needs to be convicted. You know who needs to be lifted up. You know who needs, in whatever capacity, your sanctifying grace or your saving grace. Holy Spirit, we pray by your word that you would do that work now. That you would shape us and mold us into the image of your Son. God, as we are going to sing in just a moment, what riches of kindness you've lavished upon us. Your blood was the payment. Your life was the cost. Lord, the reality is we stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins were many, but your mercy is more. Let that be our song. Let that be our confession. Let that truth not to just be a conceptual thought that we have when we think about our faith, but a confessional reality and experience. And let us live and tell this message of Jesus to the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.